Okta Nonverba is a show that's raw and real, featuring hard-hitting interviews with people that live by the ethos of actions, not words. Marcus Aurelius Anderson is a TEDx speaker, best-selling author, veteran, and leadership and mindset coach. With this show, you get to join Marcus as he goes inside the minds and experiences of the world's most successful warriors, leaders, entrepreneurs, and experts. With each episode, you're going to get the philosophies, concepts, tactics, and strategies these leaders use to turn adversity into victory. Live an extraordinary life based on actions, not words. Now, here's your host, Marcus Aurelius Anderson. Octanon verba is a Latin phrase that means actions, not words. If you want to know what somebody truly believes, don't listen to their words. Instead, observe their actions. I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Kyle Creek, a.k.a. The Captain, his bio is simple. Writer, creator, instigator. His books include Fucking History, Speech Therapy, and the Feel Free to Quote Me series. I actually was lucky enough to get a signed hard copy of Speech Therapy. You can learn more about him at kylecreek.com. You can follow him on Twitter and Instagram for more of his pragmatic prose, as I mentioned. Also sign up for his Monday Mutiny emails, which are absolutely worth the read in the open. Kyle, thanks for being here. Thanks for the time. And you're a very busy man, so I appreciate you given us your time and your expertise. Yeah, thanks for having me. I think that intro is a little odd given the fact I'm a writer. So words kind of do drive much of my life, but I like to hope that I embody them and I live them out. You absolutely do. Because if you didn't write, you wouldn't be doing the actions we were discussing earlier. How many people approach you asking, hey, I want to write a book or what do I start? What does that look like? But yet when you tell them, do you have an outline? Do you have a deadline? Do you have an idea of what this should be? Lots of times it's sort of vague. You were mentioning with Twitter, these tweets have to be very short. They have to have a lot of density to them. And even with speaking, some speakers, it's easier for them to speak for an hour than to speak 10 minutes specifically about something that actually has a lot of power and gravity to it. So when you hear somebody say that they want to begin writing a book, what do you say to them first? Doesn't everybody? (laughs) I think we all have at least one friend who's told us about that unfinished novel for the past seven or eight years. Not to knock it. I think it's cool that people want to write. I just don't think a lot of people understand what it takes to write. I actually had a conversation one time when I was living in Los Angeles with an editor. He worked as a video editor for films. And he told me, he said, you know, I envy you writers because it is the ultimate form of self-discipline. He's like, you guys have to sit down and write and no one really stands over your shoulder no one really gives you a deadline you just have to put in the work and i am that about you guys but also he said that's why i could never be a writer i need a manager i need someone kind of barking at me to get things done and i think it's that self-discipline that keeps most people from writing books and it's very popular these days to hear people compare self-discipline to motivation because they are fairly polar opposite i know david goggins talks about it extensively you know, the fact that motivation is fleeting, but self-discipline always stays. And to relate that to writing, it couldn't be more true because for the first, say, 10 or 20 pages of a book, you're motivated. You're very stoked. It's fun. It's flowing. You're in that creative process and you feel like you could write for 10 hours straight. But by week two or week three, or even when you get to the first round of revisions and you have to go back and read your work and start editing your work, that's when it's self-discipline. It's not fun. A lot of the times you start to second guess yourself and you have to just trust the process enough to know what the end result is going to be. 
it's harder for someone on their first book because I think our first of anything, we overthink it too much. And I remember doing that with my first book, the first feel free to quote me book, which was really just a collection of quotes. Man, I looked over that thing and I re-edited that thing and changed commas and punctuation for 20 days straight. And now I'm at a point where I can kind of look at something. I can be like, okay, this is good. It's going to be interpreted. I can sit here and hack it to death. And most of the time, if you hack it too much, you make it worse. It's kind of like a painting. At some point, you have to decide your painting's done. You can sit there and you can keep tweaking the lighting. And you can adjust the hand position of a character. But at some point, you have to stop making edits. If you keep making edits, you are going to fuck up that canvas and you are not going to get the masterpiece you're looking for. Yeah, it's almost like a clinical aspect to it. And it takes that organic, that love, that energy out of it. So there's that fine line. And you've done your 10,000 hours, not necessarily in just strictly writing books per se, but in a lot of other kinds of writing. But before we unpack that, We all have our first love, our first kiss, the thing that we remember. You've wanted to be a writer for a long time. Was there a certain book or a certain author or even a certain quote that just punched you in the face and said, God damn, I want to write something like that? I read a lot growing up because my mother was an English major. She's always been a big reader. And as we were kids, she would often give us the opportunity to earn our allowance by either mowing the lawn or reading a book. And I quite often chose the reading route of earning money. So in elementary school, she introduced me to a lot of classics. I loved The Count of Monte Cristo. That was one of the probably the books that really stuck with me. 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea by Jules Verne, I was fascinated with because I grew up in Utah. I grew up in a small mountain town. So anything about the ocean, giant squid, it just fascinated me. Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, The Invisible Man. I mean, all of Mark Twain's books. I grew up reading those. And so I had a really good understanding of classics and storytelling. And I loved to read, but I wasn't much of a writer until college. When I was in college and I was writing papers for just my general prerequisite courses, I was always getting A's and I had teachers compliment me often on my writing. And I started to kind of understand I, I had a bit of a knack for it. And I think a lot of it came from the fact that I read so much growing up. I think it's Stephen King who says, if you don't read, you have nothing to write about. Like, you have to be an avid reader to be a good writer. And so I attribute much of my youth to what attracted me to it later in life. But my senior year, I had started writing for a local paper. I was writing music columns, like reviews of bands that came through town or new albums that came out. And I was doing it for free. I just wanted to get my name out there and practice writing. And the whole time I was trying to get a job in advertising because I had a friend who worked in advertising and I think he was making like $60,000, $70,000 a year as a writer, which was just blew my mind. I interviewed with a multiple, a lot of agencies in the Salt Lake Valley. And I remember being told verbatim by one of them, you're a great writer. We love your portfolio, but we can't hire you because your fingers are tattooed. And I had spent a bit of time as a tour manager. I'd been a music lover my whole life. Obviously, that's why I wrote a music column. And so I got a lot of tattoos very young and I'm also a drummer. And I kind of thought, you know, maybe if writing doesn't work out for me, I'll drum in a band or something. And I remember I applied for one more agency. The creative director met me at a bar and he asked why I wanted to work in advertising. I said, honestly, I want to get paid to write. I'm just going to be straight up. I want to make money and I know advertising is the way to do it. And then I went on to tell him, I have interviewed with every agency that will have me. And if you don't hire me, I'm just going to say, fuck advertising, and I'm going to go find a different job. And I said to him just like that. 
And he loved it. And he gave me an opportunity. And I remember I was making, I think, $52,000 a year. And I was able to get an apartment and get a truck. And to be able to do that as a writer just blew my mind. And it filled me with so much gratitude, but also filled me with just a lot of confidence. I loved that I had a job that allowed me to be creative and allowed me to pay my bills. And I worked in advertising for about 10 years. I climbed the ranks up to a creative director. And I eventually moved to New York City. And I ran a team in New York, a team in Vegas, and a team in LA. And I was overseeing multiple writers until I finally, it was about five years ago is when I left my full-time advertising role and really started focusing on what I wanted to focus on, which was I wanted to write stuff that had deeper meaning. I wanted to write stuff that had longevity to it. I wanted to write things that when I die are still going to stick around and help people. But it was advertising that really taught me, I think, to write in a way that is succinct and relatable. And I know you talked about Twitter. A lot of people fail on Twitter because we can go on for three or four paragraphs about a subject, but to distill that down to three or four sentences that have the same weight is hard. And I learned to do that in my professional career. As you said, that was that was my woodshed. That's where I went to work. And I owe a lot of my personal career to what I did there. We were talking about Stephen Pressfield and Robert Greene before. Those gentlemen paid their dues in a lot of advertising as well, trying to understand. Pressfield wrote the book, Nobody Wants to Read Your Shit. It was that very idea of you have to have a hook. You have to get these people's attention. Once you had that first sentence and now they're like intrigued, now you can slide in whatever else it is, whether it be an offer, a book, whatever you're trying to persuade them in. But if you don't get that initial attention and you with this very authentic, no bullshit approach, again, the way that you talked to that, that last person that when you were trying to get into the agency and you're like, if I don't do this, then fuck it, I'll do something else. Like that's the kind of, dare I say, courage that is necessary to write something great in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree. I think whether you're writing ad copy or you're writing a novel, there's a piece of you in everything you write. And so when you submit work out for public approval, whether it's publishing or putting it on a social media platform, the criticism and the negative reactions, they sting at first. They sting a lot at first and you start to doubt your ability. But I've been doing it so long and I actually got to a point where I was intentionally trying to elicit negative responses. I know for a couple of years there, if I didn't lose some followers every time I posted something, I didn't think it was good enough. But even now, when I try something new, I mean, I'm, I'm very comfortable with being opinionated. I'm very comfortable getting some online hate. I'm comfortable with people trying to come after me for that. But whenever I try something new, like I just completed a children's book and I'm working on right now what I consider my first real book, which is going to be substantial to what I've done in the past. And I'm going to eventually move into fiction. I'd like to write novels. You better believe I'm going to be nervous when that new stuff comes out because it's not familiar to me. But I have enough backstory and have enough successes under my belt that I'm confident to do it. And I think a lot of my early success in writing came from the fact that I was rather rebellious growing up. I grew up LDS and I grew up Mormon. And when I was a teenager, you know, when I was in high school, I started pushing away from it. I kind of had to find my own way in life. I lost all, most all my friends because most of my friends were all through the church. When I stopped going, I lost all my friends. I had to find a new friend group and I had to find a new belief system and I, everything I had known, I started questioning. And so I had a real rebellious streak in me, particularly living in Utah and writing was one of the things that helped me kind of express myself. And it was that rebellion that kind of gave me that fuck it mentality that didn't prevent me from putting work out there. 
you know, in the early days of Instagram, I would put all sorts of work out there. I would write reviews on the bowl of cereal I ate that morning. I would write movie reviews. I would comment on a car accident that I took a photo of in an intersection. Like I just kind of went at it from every angle just to, you know, find ways to write and talk about the everyday. And I think that's what also a lot of writers get wrong is they forget that you still got to be a student of life. You still have to live, you have to observe, and you have to look at things in a way that give you things to write about. Everyone likes the idea of being a hermit of a writer that goes and sits in a cabin with a fire and a coonhound curled up under your feet, and you just kind of write away, you know, the next great American novel. It works like that for a time, but the other six months, you better be out there traveling and seeing the world, or you're going to have nothing relatable to write about. And this is why I kind of look towards Mark Twain as one of my favorites, because he was an extensive traveler. He was a family man. He had multiple hobbies. He was very passionate about cats and dogs and all sorts of animals. And he really ingrained himself in a variety of lifestyles in order to write the kind of stuff he did. And that's why he, you know, was essentially the godfather of the American novel. And a lot of people see him as the first stand-up comic, because if you look at anything long enough, you're going to start finding some humor in it. And if you don't find humor in it, you're going to be pretty fucking miserable. So you better learn to look at things with a sense of humor if you're going to want to write. Yeah. And it's that depth and breadth of life that adds that texture and depth and breadth to what we write. Right. So when we see, I read Hemingway when I was 20 and it wasn't profound to me because I wasn't mature enough to understand. But when I read it, when I was 40, it was like, man, it's like, how did I overlook this before? But that's okay. Because the books that I thought that were great when I was 20, when I read them when I'm 40, it's like, this is kind of elementary stuff, but it just meets us where we are, I guess, in that path. But that's the beauty of writing. It has the ability to touch people at different times. And that's what I was saying earlier, when I want something that lives on beyond me. The first time I read The Four Agreements, I was 19. It was a part of a communications course in college where it was assigned reading. I read the whole thing in one Saturday because I remember thinking, wow, this is, I never read anything like that before. Primarily, I'd read only fiction. I wasn't a big, uh, you know, nonfiction writer, a reader until college. But I reread that book a year ago and it hit me completely differently. And I reread Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning a year ago. And that book cut me to the core. And I'm reading that in college too. And I related a bit to it, but I hadn't really had enough pain in my life. I hadn't had enough struggle. I hadn't had enough of those dark moments of questioning myself and being depressed and not knowing if I'm going to get out of it. But now that I can look back on those times and read that book, it's like, damn, this is probably, I think, one of the most beneficial books for anyone to read. And it's one of the books that when I give speeches or when I'm out doing book signings, I almost always get asked, what books do you recommend? Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning is always on there. And 48 Laws of Power is on there, too. And I know we talked a little bit about this earlier. And I always recommend this to people with a side of caution where I say, this book is not a book to pattern your life after. This book will make you an absolute fucking sociopath. It'll make you very disconnected. It'll cause you to wall up. It'll cause you to not be vulnerable. But this book is one of the most important books if you want to understand how other people act and why they do what they do in life. I think anyone who works in the corporate world could benefit from it, but anyone just in any stage of their life can benefit from it with the knowledge of knowing that it's not a roadmap it's more or less the rule sheet for a game like if you're going to play chess you better know how those pieces move and that's what that book teaches you and so i usually recommend those two books 
And then kind of whatever I'm reading at the time, if I like it enough, I'll throw that in there too. But I don't even remember what your question was. I got off on a tangent. No, you're good. Let's go with it. Let's just do the free association. And I absolutely agree. The 48 Laws of Power was beneficial for me as well. But again, you see the Machiavellian component to it. But again, if we can just suspend like if this is good or bad, we just look at the truth of what it represents. In the martial arts, I'm an instructor under Bruce Lee's protege, Guru Dan and Asanto. And he says that the most judoka, most people that do judo, there's 68 recognized throws. But the throws that they use the most, there's usually about three. But they know all of them so that they are not victimized by those throws because they've never seen it before. And if you wait until the heat of combat to realize, oh, shit, I'm a step behind, you're not. You're two or three steps at that point, And now it's already over. What's that thing about life? You got to be prepared. You know, if you're prepared, whenever something comes your way, you're ready to deflect the throw. You're ready to counteract it with your own thing. I think that's a big proponent in mental health. That's also kind of what Viktor Frankl preaches in the book, Man's Search for Meaning, is having that forward-looking mindset of having a purpose or having a divine goal to strive for, because that helps you stay focused and it helps you weather the shit that life's no doubt going to throw at you. And there's been times in my life where I was very focused on the here and now. I was very focused on, you know, a lot of material things. And those were hard. Those were some dark times for me. If you were following me, I don't know how long you followed my account, but back in 2019, I had to take an extended hiatus. And I, I told everyone, I said, listen, you know, I appreciate your support. I appreciate everyone that's been following my work for this long, but I am dealing with some shit for a long time. I've been ignoring, you know, this pain in my mind. I've been brushing my depression aside. I've been trying to distract myself with work and travel and going out to bars and meeting people and speaking events and anything I could do to feel like I had some purpose when really I was just deeply wounded and I just didn't want to face who I was. I'd been hiding behind this captain persona, which allowed me to have a little bit of veil over my life to where I could be vulnerable at the same time, kind of back away and say, oh, no, that's this captain character. It's not Kyle Creek. And so when I finally had to really sit with myself, I had a hard time rediscovering who Kyle was. I think a lot of that came from my rebellion that I talked about earlier in my life when I left the church and I learned to suppress a lot of my teenage emotions. I never really talked to my family about anything. I kind of went through life just being a stoic little garden gnome. I'd be out in the garden getting rained on, but I wouldn't let anyone know I was wet. You know, I was very much wanted to be seen as someone who couldn't be fucked with. And so when life started to fuck with me, I had a hard time and I actually got suicidal for a bit there. And I've talked about it extensively to people. And I often joke, you know, once you've admitted to half a million people, you want to kill yourself. There's nothing that can really hurt you after that. Because to me, that was the most embarrassing thing that could get out was the fact that I was at one point that dark that I, I didn't want to be here anymore. And as a writer and as someone that people look up to and seek advice from, it felt like that was a very embarrassing thing to be like, you know, you can take advice from me, but just so you know, I'm fucked up. <laughs> it wasn't until I came to terms with it and started speaking about it that I realized the outpouring of support was far greater than the fear I had about how it was going to be perceived. And it was a real shift in my writing too. When I came back to social media after taking that break, I started putting my real name on my work. I started going by Kyle Creek and not Captain anymore. And the Captain had originally started because I wanted to separate my professional life from much of my personal life. I didn't want people to find out who I was. I didn't want people to know about my past. I wanted to kind of almost, you know, forget where I came from and just kind of start anew. And that's essentially what I did with it. But also I was paranoid about getting fired. I was paranoid about losing my $52,000 a year salary 
over some very crass thing I tweeted because I used to tweet a lot of stuff that was across the line many times. I think it was Daniel Tosh who said, if you don't cross the line once or twice, you forget where the line is. It might have been Anthony Chelsea. I can't remember which comedian said that. But I remember hearing that. I remember thinking, that's pretty accurate because that's what I do quite often. You got to find out where the line is again by brushing up against it. And so I used to do a lot of that. And the captain kind of allowed me to at least feel like I had some security and not losing my job. But it's funny. I was in New York one time when I was working in advertising. I was sitting at a boardroom table at a Ritz-Carlton property. And one of the asset managers, probably a gentleman in his 50s, leans over to me and says, I love your work. And I thought he was talking about my advertising portfolio. He says, no, me and my wife, we look at your Instagram all the time. We think you're awesome. That was the first time I'd ever had crossover at that level. And it felt good. It felt like I'd kind of created something for myself as opposed to just continually writing things for other people and helping their dreams come true, essentially. So again, I got off on a tangent. I do this quite often when I start talking. So yeah, feel free to pick up wherever. I love that. And again, it shows that humanity. We were discussing Tony Blauer and how you're going to be doing a live show with him tomorrow. So that show will be out before this one, obviously. Having said that, I've been doing martial arts since I was 12. Tony Blauer was on the cover of Black Belt Magazine ever since I can remember as a kid. They always say, don't meet your heroes. But I connected with him. I actually went and spoke. I was the keynote speaker for his event two years ago. And this is in 2021. So before he introduces me, because I always talk about adversity, he talks about fear. The first thing he intros me with is he's like, when I was going through this, I thought, holy shit, I can lose everything because of what's going on in the world right now, because of all of his business is built on that. And he says, so here I am, this guy that talks about fear. He studied it extensively for 40 years, the fear loop, the psychology, the physiology, and law enforcement and, and top tier operations and mixed martial arts, all this stuff. So he's supposed to be this fear guru and he's fucking petrified. But in doing so and acknowledging it, just like you were saying, how it's like, I can give you advice, but I'm all fucked up. Man, that humanity is what makes people want to buy into us more and they understand who we are. It's very easy to put on, like you say, a persona and deflect everything. But when you can say, even in my TEDx, it was like, I was suicidal when I was paralyzed from the neck down, but I couldn't even act on it. So being in that place and having to unpack your entire life and look at all the regrets, all the shit you wish you had done, if you had a second chance, what would you do? And would you really do it if you had the second chance? Like that kind of introspection, that's what people want because they're all going through that. And again, as we mentioned before, maybe at 20 years old, they don't, but maybe at 35, maybe at 40, when they have their first child, when they go through a divorce, when they lose somebody, when there's a car wreck, when there's a cancer diagnosis, yeah, it has a lot more power to it then. Wait a minute. So you were paralyzed from the waist down at one point? From the neck down when I was preparing to deploy with the infantry, yeah. Wow. I didn't know that about you. You talked about getting a second chance in life. It just hit me when you were talking about it. Just in their picturing having to come back from that. And when you said feeling suicidal but not being able to act on it, I mean, that state of powerlessness is something that most people will never comprehend. So when you talk about kind of coming back from the dead, I mean, you've done it. I didn't know that background too much about Tony either. So now I'm more excited to talk to him. We have a mutual friend of a friend kind of connection. And that's how we got in touch. So I'm looking forward to that tomorrow more than I was now. I already was, but now it seems like it's going to be a really good conversation. And Tony's awesome. He's down to earth. He's funny as hell, dry sense of humor. He's got this deep voice. You guys are going to have a great time. I love it. And then speaking of other people, Andy Frisella, you were on his podcast and you guys are friends. I've followed Andy almost as long as I followed you. And then I'm in the Arte Syndicate, his mastermind entrepreneur group. So tell us a little bit about how you guys 
started talking and then the interview that you do with him, I think is tremendous too. You guys talk about everything from 75 hard to mental fitness and everything. Yeah. That interview with him was a lot like this one where I just kind of kept going off on tangent. I think Andy had like a sheet of notes ready to talk more about 75 hard and just didn't go that way. Just goes off the rails. Yep. Yeah. Andy and I became friends in 2020. I had knew of him prior to that because I had a friend who was entrepreneur and she was really big on, you know, seeking advice from other entrepreneurs. I think she's also a member of that syndicate that you're in. And I remember probably in 17 or 18, I got in the car. She picked me up from the airport one day and I heard this guy's voice just going off. And it was the MM CEO project she was listening to. <laughs> and I remember saying, who the, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> and she said, oh, this is that Andy Frisella guy. He runs that first form company I was telling you about. So that was like my first experience with him. And then I hadn't heard about him for years. And then during 2020, he reshared something of mine because I was fairly outspoken during that time. We all know Andy is never been anything other than outspoken <laughs> and he re he reshared something and that friend of mine sent it to me and said hey that andy guy shared something of yours it's a big deal so i wrote andy and i just said hey thanks for sharing i appreciate it and we started talking back and forth and then every month or two you know we'd see something else happen during 2020 and we'd comment to each other about it or i'd write something else and he'd share it or i'd share something he wrote and so it was like that for about a year and then i found out i was going to be a dad and Similar to Tony, I mean, when the world shut down, I lost a lot of my revenue, my income, because I was a contractor for hospitality. I had left advertising. I was still writing my own books, but they weren't selling anywhere near the volume they are now. And I was working these contracts at various hotels. And as soon as travel shut down, all the hotels, the first thing they're going to do is cut their marketing budget. Because there's no reason to market to people that can't come. And so I lost all my contracts. Tapped into my savings. I ate through that. And I was pretty much set back to square one by middle of 2020. Part of what inspired me to write speech therapy is I felt like because I myself was in a place where I was contemplating a lot of things that were bothering me, I was probably in a really good position to talk about it because I felt like I could relate to it. So yeah, I found out I was going to be a dad. I was going through this financial struggle and I was going through this issue of thinking about how I was going to move forward, take care of this child, my girlfriend, and get us into a house that we liked. And on the same time, I wanted to write these new books. I had these projects I wanted to work on. And I heard Andy talking about 75 Hard, obviously, extensively. And I thought to myself, you know, I used to be an athlete. I was pretty active in high school and college. I mean, I could probably do this program. But I wanted to do it more so for the mental aspect than anything, because I felt like not only did I lose my finances, throughout 2021, I lost a lot of my trust in myself and I lost a lot of my self-discipline. I, like many, kind of fell into a rut and I tried 75 hard. I think I failed 20 days in. I tried again. I failed 20 something days in. I tried again. Every time I'd fail in the 20 day range because I'm a very independent person. I didn't like the idea that I was following the advice of some stranger I'd never met. <laughs> and so I'd get to like the day 20 range and I'd be like, fuck this Andy guy. Who is this guy? Like, he doesn't know what I'm going through. I'm not doing this stupid fucking program. And I'd quit and I'd go crack a beer and I'd be like, fuck this. I'm going to go sit by the, you know, I'm going to go sit out in the sun or by the pool. And I'm just going to, no, this is, and then a couple of days later, I'd be like, God damn it. If I had stopped quitting, I'd be like 60 days into this thing already. <laughs> And I tried again. I ended up getting sick. I think I failed it probably seven or eight times, but three times really, really well. That was in the 20 something day range. And then finally, I said, you know what? 
I'm pretty prideful. If I tell Andy I'm going to do this program and I don't do it, I'm going to feel like a piece of shit. And I know Andy probably hears people tell him this all the time. You know, hundreds of people a day are probably telling Andy, oh, I'm going to do 75 hard. I mean, since I've done it, I have dozens of people a week tell me they're going to do it. But I don't keep tabs on them. I don't follow up. That's not my job. The job of the program is to do it yourself. So I told Andy, I said, hey, I think I'm going to do this 75 hard program. I hadn't told him I already failed it multiple times. And he just kind of responded with a, like a blah response because, you know, he gets it all the time. And the fact that he responded like that kind of motivated me. I was like, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it now. I want to show that motherfucker now. So I, I finally did it. I finally got through it and I got in really good shape. And I did it during an incredibly uncomfortable, inconvenient time in my life. I mean, the time that I did 75 hard and completed it, I moved across country. So as I was moving across country in a moving truck, I was traveling with a 40 pound weighted vest. And every morning I would go on my run walk with my vest. I had my dog with me. I'd take my dog walking with me. And then at night I'd either work out in whatever hotel I was at or I'd go on a walk again. I did that across the whole country from Vegas to Florida. I also attended a wedding where I didn't drink. My son was born in the middle of 75 hard. I had all sorts of like the most inconvenient, like the stuff that people just bitch and moan about. I think I flew on probably a dozen flights. I remember I got up, I got up at 3 a.m. some mornings to go get my first cardio in because I had a flight at 5 and a.m. And I'd fly across country and I'd be over, you know, I'd land somewhere at midnight and go to the hotel gym. Like I had everything to keep me from doing it. But that, I think, is why I was successful, because I was like, you know what, if I can do it with this inconvenience in my life, I know that I can write this next book. I know that I can do this project. And once I have my son and he's here and he's a toddler and he's terrorizing the house, I'll be able to manage my time correctly. And that's why I say I really did the program for the mental aspect of it. And I think Andy and I talked extensively about that on his podcast. So in doing that, I got back so much of just who I had kind of lost during this shutdown of the world and all the bullshit we dealt with. And I stick fairly close to the routine now in the sense that I try to work out twice a day and I try to do it when it's inconvenient. I obviously don't eat as strict and I still try to read every day, primarily because I was already a reader beforehand. But now I actually try and like make more of an effort to make sure I read at least every day. So I have some stuff to kind of draw from as I'm working on my own books. But that program really, I think it saved me from another severe bout of depression. I was already in a very severe bout of depression. My relationship was on the rocks and it was horrible because my girlfriend was a month pregnant and we were about to part ways and I couldn't figure out how I was going to make that work, how we were going to make it work. And it was completely my own doing. It was my lack of self-discipline and it was me not taking responsibility for shit that had happened because I, like many, started blaming the world, blaming this bullshit virus, blaming, blame, 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 blame. I did it like everyone else because it was just that victimhood mindset was fucking everywhere. You couldn't escape it. It got to the point where I just couldn't even get on social media anymore because I got so tired of seeing it. But once I took that power back and I completed speech therapy, I wrote the next book. I've written, I've actually written two more books since then, both children's books. Like I said, I'm working on this new book. I feel like that flow in my life was really what transformed me into the person I am now that's actually going to have some longevity in my writing career. I kind of feel like the way I used to write 2015, 16, up to like 20, I don't think I had longevity with that style of work. And I don't think I had longevity personally because I was tired of it, but I don't think it was the kind of stuff that could stick around. But now I feel like I am at that place where some of these great writers have emulated most of my life. I feel like I might be able to hold my own with them 
when it comes to some of the new stuff I'm working on. It's crazy how much we're capable of and how quickly we as humans forget about it. Even me being paralyzed and injured and taking a year and a half to recover. Most of us, when we face adversity, we're like a kid. We touch the hot stove and then we get away from it as quick as we can because we want to get away from this thing that hurt us. But we often forget a lot of powerful lessons that are there if we're strong enough to stay close to it, but we don't. We don't want to examine the wound. We just want to get away from it, move on to the next thing. Like you said, keep ourselves occupied, keep ourselves distracted. But when you're in that place, especially if it's a place of depression, you're examining everything and you're uncovering every stone and looking in all those shadows, whether it be Viktor Frankl's idea or even the Jungian idea of this darkness. If we don't look into it, it's always going to be the boogeyman. It's always going to be bigger than what we think it could be. We'll make it into something more. And then, like you said, that translates into, I'm a victim. I can't, I'm not taking my power back. This is happening to me. But if we wait for somebody else to save us, it's never going to happen. The minute that we choose to save ourselves, that's whenever we get that power back. That's whenever we're actually pushing and finding out what we're really made of. I think a lot of this comes down to fear. And I like that I'm talking with Tony about this tomorrow because fear, as you said, is his forte. But when you confront fear in life, or when you come across fear in life, I should say, there are two options. You either confront it or you suppress it. And when you confront it, at least you know the next time it arrives, you'll know how to handle it. When you suppress it, it's going to come back and you're not ready for it. And that's when you, you know, get into this triggering your emotions and this kind of stuff that leads people off, you know, an emotional roller coaster. I don't believe we ever truly eliminate fear. And Tony, I think, is a great example of that. How you said he still felt it. It's like I said, you either learn how to handle it or you suppress it and just continually ignore it and ignore it. You make choices in your life that by the time you're 60, you look back and go, what the fuck did I do? And it's because you let fear steer you for way too long. And I did that. I let the fear of being seen as Kyle Creek steer me the wrong way in some of my career. I let the fear of becoming a father steer me away from this glorious relationship I have with my son now. I let the fear of, you know, just doing work and putting myself out there limit me from what I'm truly capable of. And I'm pretty hard on myself in the sense that I will be 37 this year. And I was telling my buddy this a couple of weeks ago. I said, man, I'm 37 and I only have seven books out. I'm like, fuck, I should have written by like 15 by now. And I'll get really hard on myself for having not done more work. And honestly, I just wasn't ready for it. I don't think the work I wrote back then, like I have some book ideas that I've been sitting on for years. I don't start them because I don't think I'm ready for them yet. I don't think I've had the life experience to write the book correctly. And that's why I'm really motivated by living life. That's why I try to travel a lot. I mean, this past year, I think I flew on 50 flights and my son was on about 40 of those. He's a year and a half. And so he's been on more flights in a year than most people are going to go on in their entire life. I mean, he's been out of the country. He's been to Scotland with us and Ireland and London. And I know he's too young and he's not going to remember those, but he has the photos. He'll see him someday. He'll know that he went there. But more so, I want to be an example to him and others that it's like he didn't impede my life in any way. I want him to know that I made a conscious effort to include him in my life. And even though it's inconvenient, it's hard flying overseas with a young child. But it's in that hardship that I've learned to appreciate what I have as far as my son, my relationship with my girlfriend, and just the opportunity, the fact that I'm able to travel with them when I want and I'm not beholden to, you know, a timesheet or I don't have to request PTO through my superior. I mean, when I was making $52,000 a year as a writer, 
I never thought I'd be a writer that could fly overseas and do that on my own dime. And I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing with my life. One of the questions I'm asked pretty often is, what would you do if you weren't a writer? And honestly, I'd probably just go sit on a stump and be bored out of my fucking mind. There's not a whole lot more I want to do other than write. I mean, the other thing that would really entice me is I've always, I've been really obsessed with wildlife my whole life. I would love to be a wildlife photographer. But aside from that, I mean, writing is what I want to do. I feel so grateful to have that direction in life because I have buddies that are my same age and older than me. They still don't know what they want to do. They're still working the same job. They've been working for over a decade, working for someone else. They don't have real direction. And if you ask them what they want to do in life, they can't tell you. And that makes me sad. It makes me sad for them. I think everyone needs to find that one thing that whether it pays you or not, you have to find some purpose that you're willing to do it just for the sake of doing it. And for me, it just happens to pay me at the same time, which is beyond amazing. Yeah, it's that cross-section of this expertise, this voice, this ability to actually present it in a way. And like you say, they always say if we write the book and it helps one person, then that's enough. But oftentimes that's what the juice that keeps us going when you get that message, that email, shake hands with somebody and they say, speech therapy changed my life or what you posted on Instagram, you know, 75 hard, you inspired so many people to do 75 hard because you were doing it. So that in and of itself, that trickle effect is tremendous. And again, we can't really learn what it's really like until we're doing it until we're doing the work. Cause I've did 75 hard. I did the live hard program the whole year of in the phases of it. Yeah, I did that too. Yeah. And you crushed it. So it was like this idea of, okay, you do it the first time, the 75 days, and then you have the next part and then you take the month off and you go back to it. And it's almost like going back to it, even though you've been so close to it, there's still little parts of it where you're like, there's more to this than what I thought that there was. But then again, when you're writing, it's the same thing. When you're trying to finish the book, it's the same thing. When you're trying to promote the book, it's the same thing. There's all these hardships and adversities, no matter what it is. So like you said, the hardship of bringing your son to travel, well, of all the ones to have, that's worth the price. That's worth the effort. If that's the real hardship, that's my cross to die on in life. I mean, that's a pretty good hardship to have, you know, especially coming from a guy who was paralyzed from the neck down at one point. It's all relative. But I like what you said about receiving those messages about your books, helping people. If it wasn't for those, I would have left social media back in 2020. I am very disillusioned with social media these days. I talk about it probably too frequently in podcasts I've recently been on because it doesn't appeal to me like it used to. But I enjoy and I also do feel a bit of responsibility with what I have cultivated. And I like being able to connect with people on it. And I love getting those messages. I mean, if it weren't for those messages with my first, you know, larger book, Fucking History, which I published in 2016, that's the book that really started to sell for me. That's a book I really started to get messages on. People saying, oh, you know, my dad was in the hospital. I brought him this book. It was the only thing that helped him laugh. Or my husband cheated on me and I had to leave with the kids. And I've been going through this severe depression. But this book has just made me laugh during this time. Like Those kind of messages are when I realize that there's more to what I'm doing on social media than just me wanting an outlet to ruffle feathers and make crass jokes. So I hope people, if anyone listens to this, is a reader and a fan of my work. Like when you send me those messages, I save them. I screenshot a lot of them. I send a lot of them to my mom, actually. I used to, particularly when I was writing like very crude stuff, I'd write to my mom and say, hey, just so you know, this work, it's a little crass, but look, it's helping people. I save that stuff. I put it in a folder and 
I hold on to it when I need some motivation or when I need to kind of check myself and remember, you know, that what I'm doing has a reach that extends beyond these black walls of my office. And that's the thing about it when we're in it, when we're in it deep, we're writing for ourselves many times, but that message to ourselves. You have to write for yourself, not to cut you off, but this is like a very good point I make to where you have to write for yourself first and foremost. If you don't write for yourself, you're writing for the critique of others. You will never write your best work. You're writing with a overarching concern of how it is going to be received. And that is not how you create something. Anyway, I just want to interject that right there. Continue with what you're saying. I'm sorry. No, that's the truth. And that's what I want because so many forget about that. So many are like, I want to imitate this person. And again, I understand just like musicians, Elvis Costello says that every musician is a magpie and a thief. That makes sense. We are always influenced, but yet trying to do exactly what this person is doing helps us create some chops, but eventually we have to find that voice. We mentioned Stephen King about writing in his book. He says, you can come to the blank page any way you decide, but never come to it lightly. Like you have to have some fucking intention behind that. And if I write some mediocre, bland, bullshit, vanilla stuff, I'm just going to attract vanilla, bland, bullshit people that will take vanilla, bland, bullshit action or not on what I've written. So why am I wasting my time if it's not going to actually change something? And there's a lot of vanilla, bland, bullshit books that sell very well because there is a large population of people that want to hear comforting stuff or they want to hear stuff that has a bias behind it. But I can't imagine as a writer feeling good about putting that work out. I think anyone who writes for a living can quickly identify the writers that write just for reaction or the writers that write to sell books, as opposed to the writers that genuinely enjoy or mean what they're saying. This is, I'm, I'm glad you brought this up as far as, you know, being a thief or copying other people. This is something that I have I've been wanting to post a video about this on Instagram because it seems to become more and more common, particularly in the podcast world. I cannot fucking stand how many podcasters are repeating the same shit and they are repeating word for word lines from books they are repeating quotes written by some of these greats by bukowski and hemingway and twain and they are passing them off as their own that drives me fucking crazy and it is one of the reasons that I kind of was so opposed to the podcast world for so long because I kind of felt like that was just how it was. I mean, I didn't do my first podcast till 2020. And then it took me two years to agree to do another one after that because I just felt like I didn't enjoy what I was seeing. But now that I've done a lot of them, I realize there's plenty of great people like you and other hosts out there. But other podcasters listening to this, stop repeating each other like fucking stop it is so hard i'll get on instagram and i'll look at that explore feed where it feeds up videos to you and i follow a lot of podcasters now i follow you know individuals that i've spoken with and so i get fed up a lot of podcast content now and it's like everyone is saying the same damn thing which is okay if there's merit behind it and you give credit where credit's due but i just wish there was like some major reckoning or this plagiarism that is going on. And I have, in recent weeks, DM'd some of these hosts, and I have called them out, because I can't help myself. And I see some of these hosts getting pretty big. I see some of these pages getting pretty notorious. And I've written some of them and said, hey, I really like that quote from such and such book. I remember reading that in college. Or I really liked when the originator of this said it, and I'll send them the original. Some of them write back, 
and say, oh, yeah, well, I was quoting. No, you weren't quoting that. I know exactly what you're doing. You were passing that off as your own. So, again, this is a tangent I can go on to for a long time. But to bring it back home to what you were saying, definitely be influenced and definitely take inspiration from other people. But you have to make it your own. And if you can't make it your own, give credit where credit is due because it's reciprocal. That's what's going to come back to you at some point. If you have any hope of being someone that's respected in this world, you would want people to acknowledge that and you want that energy to come back to you. And if you go out there with the energy of plagiarism and copying people and trying to be like everyone else, guess what? You're going to attract a lot of fake, bullshit, vanilla, bland garbage into your life. That's it. It's like you said, into our life, not just in our algorithm of our feed, but like in our life in general, we're going to have this mundane, mediocre idea about everything. And that will bleed over into the kind of relationship that we have, the food, the workouts, or the lack thereof. It influences everything that we do. So we have to be very cognizant of that because if we don't, that one compromise decision becomes a slippery slope in everything that we're creating. Yeah, I have this quote where I said, I think I wrote this a couple months ago, everything fake will eventually break, yourself included. You can't be fake forever. This whole fake it till you make it thing is just complete bullshit. I understand the rationale behind it. I understand sometimes you have to kind of put on a, a happy face and pretend like things aren't bothering you because there is some benefit to that. But if you build a career or you build, you write an entire book or you run an entire podcast that is created strictly from, we'll say, borrowed ideas, it's not going to go anywhere. And if it does, you're not going to feel good about it. You're not going to reap the real rewards of that. And deep down, you're going to know the whole time that what you're doing isn't really you. You're just trying to be someone else. And at some point, that's going to break you. You're going to break down. You're going to have depression. You might have some financial issues. Hell, you might actually get some legal issues at some point if you do it completely blatantly. But it will catch up to you. Maybe five years, maybe 10 years, maybe five weeks. So the best bet is just to build it right from the get-go. Everybody wants to put this next formula or this next mastermind or this next course on this thing that they're trying to build. But until they know who the hell they are, until they have this foundation of knowing what they're about, there's no fucking way they can do it because it's going to fall. Oh, I love that you mentioned these mastermind courses. Do it. Oh, <laughs> Bring it. Let's go. I was going to say, this is another big issue I have with this shit. These people, the same people that are doing this, ripping everyone's shit off, they're then selling these coaching courses that are teaching you how to be an independent thinker or an authentic man. And it's like, you... Son of a bitch, you cannot be further from what you were preaching, let alone charging people three, four, five thousand dollars to hear you repeat shit that you didn't create. Why don't you just recommend to your followers to read that book? Like, why do you got to take the book and make it your own course? Because it's not your own course. Just recommend that book. Give credit where credit is due. And it's just it's that complete oh my God, I just can't stand the lack of integrity that's going on with this kind of stuff. Like I get asked all the time and I get suggested all the time, like you should run a course, you should do a 12 week course. And I have these like, these coaches of coaches. Have you heard like these people that exist where they coach a life coach for life coaches? <laughs> I have these people reach out to me and say, hey, I've been a big fan of your work. Just so you know, I coach coaches and I can coach you to make X amount of money every month. And it just, I go look at their page and I'm like, everything on here, it's okay. It's a post-it note where you've written a quote from a great book that, again, I probably read 10 years ago. And you put the post-it note on your mirror and you take a photo of it and you promote it like you created it or you're saying it. I would never want to be associated with someone like that, let alone, I don't know how you can live with yourself charging people money. And then you talk about these sales funnels and like it dehumanizes 
the experience of being human, essentially. Like, we're not put on this earth to gather all this wisdom and to survive these trials so we can charge other people going through it at the same time. It feels incredibly predatory to me. And it might be because I grew up with a religious background, why this stuff rubs me such a wrong way. If you have something to offer to the world, offer it. Find a way to offer it. That's why I don't charge for, like when people start doing like Instagram subscriptions, I mean, come fucking on. How arrogant do you got to be to think people are going to subscribe to your Instagram? <laughs> Share that. Put it out there. People are going to resonate with it. If you want to make some money on it, write a damn book. You're not going to make a lot of money. You guess what? You got to sell a lot of books to start making money just so people are aware. It's not a business model that that has a bunch of cash coming in. But if you put enough of that work and wisdom out there, opportunities are going to come to you that don't require you to be a salesman, that don't require you to live this inauthentic life where you're trying to turn everyone into your next conversion. Oh, what's the conversion rate on this email? What's the ROI on this? Like just Oh, man, I could go on forever about this stuff. We could do a whole podcast about my distaste for life coaches and that whole world. I mean, obviously, I'm painting, you know, a canvas one color. There are plenty of people, not plenty, but there's probably about 5% that are genuinely good, that genuinely want to help, that genuinely have good intentions. But like everything in life, there's just this other money-grabbing, inauthentic side of it. And I think social media has just allowed a lot of that to become very rampant. I'm sure it always existed, but just in the last couple of years, and I think some of this was spurred by the pandemic, the fact that people were home for too long with a camera in front of them and started thinking they could become the next David. Clubhouse sensation. Yeah, exactly. Whatever happened to that app, by the way? That's what I'm saying. People figured it out. They were like, wait a minute, these people have no qualifications for anything. Yeah. Like you said, they're reading a bunch of other people's shit. Yeah, this is falling apart. Yeah, well, that's why you look at guys like Andy. Andy could be making, and he says this often, he could be making so much money on that podcast. Like that podcast could be an absolute cash cow. It could probably be one of the highest earning podcasts, if not at least in the top 10. But he doesn't do it because he's got other avenues and he just wants to genuinely share wisdom. He wants to share hope with people. He wants to help people. You can't put a price tag on that. I mean, you can. It's You can. It's about $15.99 a month, the six-month commitment. But... I just wish people would stop doing that. I do too. And like you said, we weren't put on this earth to try to scale an experience or an emotion. We were put here to experience these things because there's no experience that you and I have ever had that hasn't been had by millions of people throughout history. They've all had fear. They've all had anxiety. They've all had desires and dreams. So there's nothing that we can say that's unique, but we can say it in a unique manner that's informed from our experiences. And we can say it from a real authentic place. And it's like, I'm probably not the first person to say this. This isn't the first time you've heard this, but there it is. And that's what puts us in that place. Absolutely. I'm glad you said that because if you put any man alone in the wilderness long enough, he's going to come to a lot of the same conclusions if he can think. But your story, the way you can make it relatable, your word choice, your cadence, you can arrive at a lot of the same conclusions in a very authentic, meaningful way. And that is what people need to be striving to do. Like, I think if I were a writer or if I were starting to, you know, someone trying to start a podcast and I didn't know my direction, I would think, what were the moments in my life that changed me the most? When did I have this idea for the first time? Or when did I first experience this? And then from there, I would deconstruct it and think, okay, how many other people have probably had this experience? And now how can I 
touch those people? How can I help those people? How can I communicate to those people in a way that is relatable, but also authentic to me? And that's a completely different process than looking at the algorithm and saying, hey, I've noticed this video does really well when you quote Bukowski up front. So I'm going to quote Bukowski up front. I'm going to talk about finding something you love and letting it kill you. I'm not going to quote Bukowski, by the way, but I'm going to use that because I liked when he said it. And then from there, I'm going to do this. It's completely different if you go at it from the back route of examining your life. Because Bukowski didn't come to that conclusion without looking back on his life. And that guy was fucking tortured. I mean... This is another thing people, I think, get along with writers a lot is the idolize people like Hemingway, Bukowski, and Hunter S. Thompson. And I remember when I was early in my writing career, someone told me, oh, you're going to be the next Hunter S. Thompson. Because that was a lot of the kind of stuff I was writing. It was the very, like, you know, brash stuff. And my mom said, God, I hope not. And I said, why? She's like, because he killed himself. And I was like, good point. That's also why I really admired Mark Twain. Mark Twain was a family man. He was a good dude. His daughters adored him. His family adored him. Everyone who knew him adored him. But he was just as witty and cynical and funny and profound as any of these other guys, minus all of the negative stuff. And that's because I think he balanced his life very well. He didn't go into these dark places for too long. He didn't climb into a hole and allow himself to sit and, you know, seethe on feelings. He was very much about trying to get in front of people and experience life and travel and see things. If you do that, you will naturally have stuff to write about. That's exactly it. We can write about sex, but it's not the same as experiencing it. We have to go out and we can try to convey it, but it's not nearly the same. So that experience is what everybody's trying to get some of. Everybody's trying to find that place. And like you said, it was like the Jay Shetty effect where they would just blatantly quote somebody else, rip it off, him say it in a way, looking at the camera, put some other music behind it and a sunset. And all of a sudden, I thought for a second you were using him as a good example. <laughs> and I was like, just so you know, that guy ripped shit off too. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, Marcus, we went so wrong here. We were doing so I'm great. Glad, up until that. <laughs> I'm glad you added that. But yes, it's exactly. And the thing is, he's seen great success from it. I just don't know how you can sit and live with yourself like that. Granted, you're probably sitting in a house in the Hollywood Hills overlooking stuff, but that's just not what I want to do. My career has progressed fairly slowly for that reason, too. There's been numerous times when I've been I've been offered a pretty good out. I've been offered like I get a decent following online. I have people offer me tens of thousands of dollars sometimes to post a product to promote something for them. I just say, no, it's not what I created it for. And it's not me. And believe me, when I was going through, you know, 2021 and I was seeing some financial stuff like those offers, they start to look pretty fucking sweet. But I know the regret I will have afterward. It won't succeed. Like I'll, I'll feel that regret forever and I'll be bummed that I did it and it's not worth it to me. Well, you mentioned earlier about sustainability in writing. It's sustainable as long as we are connected to who the hell we are and we project, we write it in a very authentic way. Because again, like you say, we evolve, we change. And just how we were saying before, how a book can seem different as we age the book hasn't changed. It's us. It's our experiences. And oftentimes we'll learn a lesson at a young age and we forget it. But then we hear something that you've written or reread your book and it's like, man, I forgot about that. And now it reminds us of that wisdom that we've maybe overlooked, especially in the minutia of day-to-day -day life or being concerned about being cut off in traffic or late to make it to an appointment or whatever that may be. I can tell you've read the book. I have indeed. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I actually have recently been acquiring books from my past. Believe it or not, I don't I don't have a big book collection. 
I'm pretty big on the idea of if I like a book, I give it away. I want someone else to read it. I think that's one of the greatest respects you can pay to a, a writer is sharing their work. I've probably given away 20 copies of The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. I buy a book, I read it, and then next time I see someone or like I'll have it with me in my backpack on an airplane, I'll be talking to someone, oh, you'd like this book, and I'll, I'll give it to them. So I started actually going back and buying a lot of the books of my youth, the novels especially, because I want to start moving into that, that realm of fiction. But I recently bought like the Count of Monte Cristo on a bridge and I you know, bought 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea on a bridge because I honestly haven't read those books since school. I would like to go back and reread them and see what connected me with them so deeply then just to kind of have more you know, fodder for myself when it comes to the storytelling aspect of what I want to do with my career. And so I love the idea of work resonating with us differently at different levels in our life. And I think movies are even like that. I rewatched Goodwill Hunting this last week, actually. I mentioned this in my newsletter. I had seen Goodwill Hunting in high school, but a lot of times, I mean, I was in high school. We watched it because it said fuck a lot. We're like, we're high school kids, we're like, oh, this movie's edgy. They say fuck all the time. And <laughs> You know, when you're 17, that's why you like the movie. You don't really understand the premise behind it. But now that I'm a father and a son of my own, I rewatched it. And I was like, holy shit, this is one of the most profound movies ever made. This movie just absolutely nails it on what it's like if you allow, you know, your fear to control your life. And I put it in my top five films now, you know, obviously behind Legends of the Fall. The Legends of the Fall is the best movie ever made. But yeah, I love that about growth. And I love that about what you're saying about. It's sustainable as long as you're willing to. I'd say it's sustainable as long as you choose to make it sustainable. As long as you choose to, it's it's a choice. If you choose to continue writing about your real life, guess what? As long as you're alive, you still have real life to write about. That's why, you know, as I've gone through these changes, like I used to write a lot of dating content. You know, I ran a newsletter called Dear Captain, and I had a lot of subscribers. I ran it for four years, and I was single at the time. That made sense for me to write that. I brought it back in 2020, but with a different kind of angle where I did less dating content. And even then, I still burned out on it. I was like, this is just not its not what I want to do anymore as a writer. So I moved to a different avenue and I started doing the Monday Mutiny. And right now, that resonates with me. I like that kind of retrospection on my week before, and I think it helps people. For all I know, in six months, I'm going to move to something else. But I'm willing to keep moving in order to keep myself personally interested, but also it keeps me growing as a writer. I think every year I get better and better. And I look back on some of my old work and trust me, I fucking cringe. I cringe at my use of commas. I cringe at my use of semicolons, but I also just cringe at my opinions. And I don't apologize for it. I'm not going to delete it or remove it because that was me at the time. I like being able to have almost a baseline to look back on. And it's another thing I'm asked often, like, you know, how have you dealt with cancel culture? You know, as much as I don't really like that phrase, there's been times where I've had people try to come after me for something I've said. And again, I choose not to let it stop me. I think you have to choose to let your career come to an end over something. If you feel bad about it, by all means, genuinely apologize. If you don't, do not apologize. Be true to yourself. Keep doing what you're doing. And that's what I've done. It's like, listen, if you're not learning and growing, if you don't cringe at your life 10 years ago, you haven't changed enough. So I like that stuff. I like having it out there. I mean, obviously, it's uncomfortable sometimes, but it's indicative of where I've come as a person, but also as a writer. 
Yeah, it's very much a snapshot of us at that time. So we look back at a shot of us in early 2000 and what we're wearing, what we're listening to, what we're eating. And you said that's part of it. That's part of that evolution. I could talk to you for hours. I want to be respectful of your time, brother. You have an event coming out, but could you tease a little bit more about the book that you're working on? Could you tell us more? Is there a title? Is there a working component? No, I can't. Oh, how dare you, sir? All I will tease is that I consider it my first real book. This is the first title I will publish that won't have the captain anywhere associated to it. My other work, my other seven books have all been published under the captain because obviously I had a little bit of notoriety with that name. But this book is not the captain. This book is about Kyle Creek. This is written from Kyle Creek. And I am 100% embracing my life and my view without any of this notoriety attached to it. And so that, I think, speaks to the magnitude of the book. I'm going to divorce myself from, what is it, eight or nine years of, of a known pen name. I've self-published a lot. I've also published, you know, books through major publishers and when a major publisher wants a book from you, trust me, they want a name that's already known. And I could pro I actually know I could. My agent has suggested to me many times I could hold on to the captain. I could continue, I could write another history book. I could write another book similar to speech therapy. And I could offer them under the captain. And I would probably get pretty good advances from publishers. And my books would sell well. But nothing about that intrigues me as a person because one, I don't think it's a form of growth. If I'm not personally interested in writing another book like that, why would I do that? That way it becomes a total job. At that point, I might as well be in advertising again, writing commercials for something I don't care about. So it's a risk. I mean, the children's book were a risk. The children's book that I have completed now that my father's illustrating has been rejected, I think, 15 times. My history book didn't get rejected. I got an offer within 48 hours. But this children's book has been rejected for about eight months at this point maybe closer to 10. And I have my theories on why, but it's what I wanted to write at the time. And the concern is that I can't transition from this no bullshit, nonfiction, bucket style of writing. The concern is that my audience or my readership won't follow me to this new path that I want to go down. I think that's absolutely fucking absurd. I think most people have kids or no kids in their life. And I think they can all benefit from some good advice that's also entertaining. So I'm going to continue to take chances. That's probably as much as I can tell you about future books. So I'm taking chances with them. I'm going to do stuff that makes me uncomfortable. And I'm going to do stuff that makes others uncomfortable. And I'm going to do stuff that it's almost like still feels like a form of rebellion. But it's really this rebellion against my own state of comfort and what I've always done or known. And that's what we have to do. We have to go out and seek out that adversity and embrace it in a way that makes us stronger and better in the process who we develop into on the other side. And you have an event coming up this year. Tell us a, just a touch about that because there's a lot of enticement behind that as well. And I can't wait to shake your hand whenever it happens. It's probably going to happen October of this year. If anyone's listening, it's looking like the month of October seems to make the most sense. It's enough time for people to plan to make it happen, but also for me to plan it. So I used to do this thing called Stranger Danger, and it started in 2017, I believe. I used to travel a lot for work, and at the time I was single, and Instagram was a great way for me to like connect with people. So I would always post where I was. I'd post what bar I was going to, what plane I was on, in hopes that I'd meet or connect with someone. And I met a lot of really cool people. I'd often land in a new city, and I'd have invites to go to a bar that night, dinner reservations. Like It was really cool. I got to meet a lot of people because I traveled solo a lot. And I got this idea, you know. 
I've been pretty fortunate to travel as much as I have to travel like I do. Why don't I take someone along in real life? Instead of me trying to meet someone or me showing off, you know, where I'm going, why don't I bring someone? Like someone who's wanted to go to New Orleans their whole life. What is it like to go to New Orleans for the first time with them? And so I decided to have this contest called Stranger Danger. And I put it out there and I said, listen, you send me an essay. You tell me where you want to go. You tell me why you want to go there. And you pick like three things in that city that really appeal to you. Like maybe there's a museum or a venue or a restaurant. And then on top of that, you tell me about yourself, but you have to do it in 100 words or less. You have 100 words to explain yourself to me. And if you break that rule, I'll automatically disqualify you. Because it can't be called stranger danger if you're not a stranger. And 100 words is about enough for people to explain where they're from, maybe how old they are, and what they do for work. And a lot of people struggle with that. A lot of people went over and gave me two or three paragraphs themselves, and I would delete their entry immediately. And they probably, you know, figured that out by now. But when I set rules for something like that, I mean it. And so I ended up doing this five different times. I went with people to New Orleans. I went to St. Augustine. I went to Austin. I went to Boston. And I went to Detroit. And these were cities that people picked. They always wanted to go to Boston and see the specific museum. They always wanted to go to New Orleans and experience the French Quarter, which everyone should do. It's one of my favorite cities in America. Or they wanted to go to Detroit because I believe it was one of her relatives used to work at the Ford plant there. So she wanted to kind of see where like her family came from. Just cool stuff like that. And I was able to do it. And so I would read through all the essays. I'd get maybe 500 to 1,000 entries every time. I would read every one unless they clearly broke the rules. And I would you know just move on. And another thing is you couldn't send photos of yourself. You couldn't send links to your Instagram. If you did that, again, you're trying to break the rule of being a stranger. The first time I meet you needs to be at the airport when we both land in the city. And then we'd spend three or four days in that city and I'd pay for everything. Hotels, Ubers, drinks. The only thing I told them I wouldn't pay for is I won't pay for lap dances and I won't pay for a tattoo. Other than that, I will cover everything during this process. And it was great. It was fun. I actually learned a lot about it. And it was equally uncomfortable for me meeting some of these people for the first time. They have this preconceived notion of who I'm going to be. And so it was, it was kind of tense, but it was fantastic. I loved it. I think every one of them, I left with a new respect for the influence I've had. But I also left with just like a new friend. I mean, a lot of them I still keep in contact with. And I just had a really deep appreciation for what it's like to travel and to travel with someone. And then I, you know, got in a relationship. I got a kid now. I can't do that anymore. I mean, one, it doesn't really appeal to me like it used to. I'm not big on going out anymore. I'm not big on that kind of lifestyle. But also I had a lawyer tell me like like legal reasons that I could probably get in a lot of trouble. So I had to kill it. So then I had this view of the event. So to get around to what you asked about, I still want to be able to meet, connect with people in a really cool way. So I thought, all right, what if I rent out like a castle and I throw this one night party and it's like just you know, I'll hire music. I'll maybe I'll hire some you know people to dance with fire. I'll bring in catering and I'll have like this really cool party. Maybe it'll be like a costume party. I don't know. And then I'll allow people to come. And then it's like, okay, well, that's cool. But if I just put an open invite out there, I'm going to have 5,000 people there. So there has to be some kind of ticket. You got to earn your way in. And what better way to earn your way in than sharing my work? And I thought, okay, if you share my work, I will share this experience with you. So then I had the idea, you know, if you buy 10 of my books and do it during the holiday season, so that way you knock out 10 of your gifts at the same time. 
if you buy 10 of your books and send me a screenshot showing that you bought 10 of my books, you're RSVP'd to come in. So that's what's going to happen this October. Last I counted, about 350 people had qualified. Like we talked about before this, I'm allowing some people to slide in here or there. People still write me and say, hey, at the time, I, was, I wasn't in a good spot financially or I forgot about it. I'm just hearing about it because the algorithm buries shit. For, for all I know, some people probably didn't see it, even though I posted about it multiple times. So if you still want to squeeze in, you can. But you got to do it probably in the next week or two because I'm already in contact with venues. And right now it's looking like I've narrowed it down to a couple which are breweries built inside old churches. So it's like this beautiful old cathedral that now has a brewery in it. And one of them, I think, is large enough to hold the crowd. I think it could hold 400 is what I've talked about with the venue. I'll likely rent that out for a night in October. I'll open bar, open food, whatever. You come here, I'll swipe my car at the end of the night and let my account account figure it out. Write all this off, please. Thank you. Yes. But it's just, I want to do this cool event for people to come hang out. And I'll probably like, oh, I want to show up early. I want to take some quick bartending lessons. Because I actually think like if I was behind the bar, like pouring drinks for people, it's a cool way to interact and try and make sure I can, try to make sure I can touch as many people as possible. That's what it's looking like it's going to be. I had looked at like some museums like it's a really cool museum in st augustine i wanted to rent but their capacity i think was like 160 or something so we i surpassed that in the first two weeks of qualification so it's a learning process for me is as much as it is because seeing the response i got and also understanding a lot of venues aren't willing to break the rules because of fire code and stuff i think if i do this again which i would like to do it again i'm going to ahead of time like secure like a fairly large space to pull it off but I think it's going to be fun. I'm going to be there. My girlfriend will probably be there. My son likely won't. I mean, I don't think it's an event for kids, but it'll be fun. I'll probably speak for a little bit. I'll try and talk to as many people as I can, hang out for a bit. And then when the venue kicks us out, maybe we'll we'll move to a bar down the street or something. Maybe we'll bar hop together if everyone wants to join along. So it really was an evolution of that stranger danger idea, which was just my way of wanting to kind of share experiences with people. I left every stranger danger with great ideas for what to write about next. I left with great tweets. I left with ideas for new chapters and books. And it's like we talked about this whole time. If you just continue living, you're going to continue having things to create from. I don't care if you're a writer. I don't care if you're an entrepreneur. Guess what? As an entrepreneur, you can't solve problems if you're not out there living life and seeing problems. Like you have to experience problems and know how to solve them as an entrepreneur. You have to do the same thing as a podcaster. Figure out what people are dealing with and find a way to talk about it without just copying every other fucking one out there. Again, I mean, this is probably like the ninth tangent I've gotten on this podcast, but I think I answered your question. You did more than that. And tangents are what make conversations what they are. And I think that conversations like this are so robust that people can get multiple pieces of wisdom out of it by listening to it multiple times. There's going to be one thing that catches your attention. Listen to that and write it down, but go back and listen to everything he's talking about. Read all of his books, experience what he's talking about, because until you do that, if you do have experiences, the quotes that you read will mean that much more. There'll be that much more depth to them. And that's the key brother. Thank you so much. I appreciate you for everything you do, your work. I look forward to talking to you soon. Yeah. Thank you for having me. And so you would have them go out to Monday Mutiny, follow you on all the socials. Where would you direct everybody to get more of your work? I think the best thing you could do is probably follow me on Instagram. If you look Kyle Creek or my handle is SGRSTK, but definitely follow me on Instagram and definitely sign up for Monday Mutiny, my email newsletter, because that is where the majority of my writing goes that I'm sharing right now. 
like I said, I'm, I'm not as interested in social media anymore. And so if you want to hear from me often and what I'm currently experiencing talking about, that newsletter is the go-to. I am writing much more on the side, but that's in books and stuff that I'm not ready to talk about. No problem. I look forward to continually see your evolution and this journey. I look forward to talking to you soon. Thank you, man. Thank you, brother. Thank you for listening to this episode of Okta Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to MarcusAureliusAnderson.com and join his Okta Nonverba Inner Circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.